Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's awesome to have you with us. Hello to those of you in our online uh, campus as well and our parent viewing rooms. That's a great option if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. Also, we've got extra seating in our cafe area where you can enjoy the service as well. Uh, We are uh, in the second, we do this every uh, sort of summer, uh, two weeks of this thing called Say Yes. So you see some people with these red t-shirts on. Uh, Say Yes is a way for us to help people find a a way to get involved here at Westbridge Church. So as we move to three services, that's two weeks from today, not next week. Next week is Labor Day weekend. And then right after that, we'll go to uh, three services. But tomorrow we have 85,000 mailers hitting the post office. So they should be showing up in mailboxes by Wednesday and Thursday of this week, advertising our three services on uh, Sunday, September 11th. And when we go to three services, we want to make sure that not only do we have seats for everybody at optimal times, but we want to make sure that we're able to serve people as they come, students, uh, kids, um, babies, uh, coffee, all of the things that go into doing three services every weekend. And so this is a simple way where you can say, yes, I want to be on a team and help make that happen. Uh, So right in our lobby, we've got a bunch of tags. Uh, These are different areas that we'd love to help uh, get volunteers filled. And uh, if you would like to volunteer and take that step and volunteer in one of our teams to help us uh, make sure that we're ready to go for all three services, check out that wall in the lobby. There's people there that can answer any questions that you have. And this is a a really great way to get involved. If you'd say, man, this is my church home, uh, I want to encourage you to, you know, be on a team somewhere and um, don't just attend a great church, help make the church great. And we'd love for you to do that. So that's right out there. Uh, If that's your next step, we'd love for you to do that. Now, uh, this is, uh, we do this every summer as well. We're in this series called DNA. DNA is a part of the unchangeable things that make the church the church. And so the methods always change, but the mission stays the same. And we've been talking about these things that are unchangeable for us as a church. And today we're going to talk about the fact that as a church, we want to be a generous church because God has been generous to us. So we always want to be a church that leads the way in generosity. As we talk about that, I got to tell you, in 2019, there was an accident in Alabama. And uh, the story kind of was a, a big story because an 18-wheeler went off the highway and spilled the contents of its cargo all over the highway. And guess what was in that truck? Chicken tenders. Just chicken tenders all over the highway. And you know what the crazy people in Alabama started to do? They got out of their cars on the highway and started snagging up boxes of chicken tenders, as many as they could. And you can imagine how many chicken tenders fit into an 18-wheeler. So they were all over the highway, and people were stopping on the highway to snag some, and it was creating such a problem, even into the next day, that the uh, county sheriff department had to issue an alert, kind of like an Amber Alert. Here's what it said. The Cherokee County Sheriff's Office is asking that no one try to stop uh, to get the chicken tenders that were spilled from the 18-wheeler accident last night on Highway 35. You are creating a traffic hazard. It's a crime to impede the flow of traffic. Those cases have been on the ground for over 24 hours and are unsafe to consume. Anyone who is caught could be facing charges. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And it's easy to hear that story and think, those crazy people in Alabama. But what if it wasn't chicken tenders? What if it was something else entirely spread out all over the highway? That's exactly what happened in 2009 in San Diego. There was a uh, uh, DEA agents were making a drug bust in a parking lot, and it led to a high-speed pursuit all over the highways around San Diego, and it ended when the suspects threw $17,000 in cash out of the car as they were driving all over the five, the highway in uh, San Diego. 
Now, do you think that the sophisticated people of San Diego stayed in their cars and let the authorities handle it? Oh, no. This is a live chase. There are news cameras in choppers following this thing, right? And you're watching it live on TV, and still there are people running out onto the highway scooping up cash. They're going to be on the news. And a lot of them even knew this, and so they were covering up their faces like this and running out onto the highway like, I know I'm going to be on the news, but I'm getting me some of that cash, all right? Unbelievable, isn't it? Why would people do that? Why would people risk their lives? I'll tell you why. Because money is a powerful thing. Money is powerful. For thousands of years, it's caused people to do things they never thought they would do. For thousands of years, uh, money has caused a whole lot of evil in our world. It's caused uh, people to say things they would never say, do things they would never do. It's caused a lot of stress and problems. In fact, uh, money has also, for thousands of years, brought a whole lot of joy. When money is used the right way, it can actually lead to a lot of hope and healing, as we've just seen. And I understand that whenever the church talks about money, there are some fears associated with it. Like, I'm sure you were, you were thinking to yourself when you woke up this morning, like, maybe we'll go to church today and hopefully they'll talk about money. I'm sure that was just the first thought that crossed your mind. And some of the fears are uh, associated with pressure. Like, uh, like that one timeshare presentation that you went to when you're on vacation and they're like, you're going to get these free tickets to Disney. Just come to our 10 minute timeshare presentation that turned into like two hours and they locked the doors and put the pressure on. This is not that, all right? Nobody's locking any doors. That's not what this is. In fact, when we teach on money, we never want to teach on money from a place of pressure or a a place of unhealth as a church. So I want you to know we're healthy as a church. We've worked really hard to manage the finances in a way that we have margin so that we can teach on this from a place of health. The church is not on the verge of closing its doors. I don't need a new private jet or anything like that, all right? The old one works fine. Uh, So we're good there. The church is healthy. We want to teach on this from a position of health so that we never have to approach it with pressure. That's really important. Another fear when it comes to this topic is shame. Like you might be thinking, okay, God just wants to rub your face in the fact like, okay, well, maybe I've never given to a church before, or I know I could do more and the church is just going to shame me. I want you to know that's not how God operates and that's not how we operate. In fact, I want you to know God is way more concerned with your future than he is with your past. And so are we. Another fear around this is failure. Well, you know, I set some goals for myself and for my finances 10 years ago, and these are kind of the goals that I had, and I just haven't reached those. I thought I'd be a little further along by now, and and, uh, man, it's just some things have happened that I didn't expect. And you haven't managed finances well or planned well, or just some things came out of the blue that you weren't expecting, and it's caused your financial picture to be less than what you had hoped. And I just want you to know, here's what I would say to you. Welcome to the club of imperfect people. The person next to you is messed up in somewhere in their life as well. We're all in process. All of us are doing our best. And the goal with this is not to give guilt or pressure or shame or rub your nose in any failure. The goal is to say, okay, what what does Jesus teach on this topic of generosity? And then whatever you decide to do with that is between you and God. Our our role is to simply teach what the scriptures uh, teach, give you what Jesus says on this topic and let you do what you want with that. And so today, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about money and generosity. And what you need to know is generosity actually cultivates happiness. In uh, Acts chapter 20, Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. And it's written by a guy named Luke. It's kind of autobiographical. He's with the apostles and he's writing down the acts of what they've done. And in, in chapter 20, the apostle Paul is actually leaving and he's saying goodbye to some of his friends that he knows he'll never see again in this life. 
And it's a pretty emotional narrative. And as he's saying goodbye to them, he reminds them that he has lived his life generously. And he's not bragging. He's just reminding them this is the best way to live. And here's what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word blessed actually means happy. And we've talked about this before, but happiness is actually the byproduct of living your life in a certain way. Happiness isn't something you chase in and of itself. It's not something you can grasp onto. It simply is the byproduct of living life in a certain way. And what Jesus is saying is that people who have chosen to order their life around giving instead of receiving actually live happier lives. And that means even if you are not a follower of Jesus, it would be wise for you to live a generous life. Your life will be happier. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you should live a generous life your life will be happier. And people who have chosen to live open-handed, generous lives tend to be happier people. And I think our own experience with generous people would bear that out. Now, as we jump into this, there are some teachings floating around different church circles about money that are a little bit skewed. And I'm going to talk about three of these beliefs, and then we're going to talk about where we land on this and why that matters and what Jesus actually teaches. And one idea is that God wants you to prosper. That's one teaching that floats around uh, church circles sometimes. Hey, God wants you to prosper. Like if, if you have faith in God, he's going to make you rich. If you have enough faith, he's just gonna, you're, gonna, you're just going to prosper like crazy. And that message works really well in the United States of America. It doesn't work very well in Haiti. It doesn't work very well in other parts of the world. And the truth is, I've seen this even on TV before, where a televangelist will be like, man, give God 10. He'll give you 100 back. It's like, well, how about you send me a hundred and I'll send you a thousand. Let's try that. And it's just, it's one of these things that gets very, very skewed. And it really, you don't find it anywhere in the teachings of Jesus. This idea that if somehow, if you have enough faith, somehow if you give to God, God's going to give to you. That isn't why we give back to God. And what happens is uh, this really is a teaching that gets viewed through the cultural lens of materialism. And it gives us a kind of a twisted and extreme view of how God blesses our lives. And so this prosperity teaching is actually driven by greed. At the end of the day, it's, it's really driven by, okay, God, if I give a certain amount to you, then, then you're obligated to bless my life somehow. And really, that's more about me than it is about what God has done for me. And so what happens then is sometimes people have an extreme reaction to the prosperity teaching, and they swing the pendulum really far in the other direction. What you end up with is a poverty teaching. And the poverty teaching says this, if you love God, you should be really poor. You should really, really shouldn't own nice things. You should really, you know, apologize uh, for your house and for the car that you drive and uh, for whatever you're wearing. And you should probably just give it all away and live in a van down by the river. <laughs> and some people have that mentality of like, well, I'm not suffering enough for Jesus. I'm not, I should give more. And, and can I just be honest with you? That poverty teaching is really driven by guilt. That's a, that's a guilt mentality. It says, oh man, I should never have nice things. I, sh I, should, I should just, I should always, you know, always make excuses for anything that I happen to have that might be nice and just always aware. Like, and really, you're worried about your own image in that point. And God doesn't want you to live that way. That's really driven by guilt. And yet when you look at the life of Jesus and what he taught, it wasn't about if you had a lot or a little. It was about what you did with whatever amount you had. It wasn't about more. It was about management. And for Jesus, Jesus doesn't care how much you own. 
He just wants to make sure that what you own doesn't own you. Jesus doesn't care how much you had, but how well you managed however much you had. And so Jesus taught this, and at Westbridge Church, this is what we subscribe to, is this teaching on money. It's this generosity teaching, which is driven by grace. It's driven by grace. It says this, God, you've blessed me, and everything good that I have has come from you, and so I want to return some of that back to you, because I know that you've blessed me so that I can be a blessing to others. You've done for me so that I can do for others. God, I just recognize, look at all that you've provided for me. And it's all come from you. And because of that, I want to live responsibly towards you and generously towards the world around me. And out of a response to all that you've done. That's the way of generosity. Now, if you want to live a life like that, if you want to live a life that's marked by generosity, practically speaking, here's what that looks like. There's a few things that you have to understand around this. And the first one is this. Recognize generosity is more about your heart than your stuff. Okay, generosity is not about going, okay, I have to really take stock of all my stuff and and deal with that. Sooner or later, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is really what it comes down to. You have to wrestle this question to the ground. Do I genuinely believe that God is my provider? Do I genuinely trust God to meet all my needs? And can I be honest with you? That's what faith is. Faith is not certainty to a certain set of doctrines or beliefs. Faith says, okay, Jesus, based on everything I know about you, I have enough trust in you to move in a certain direction. Faith is not intellectual. Faith is relational. Trust in someone enough that you're willing to move in a certain direction based on what you know about that person. That's trust. That's faith. And sooner or later, as a follower of Jesus, every person who claims to follow Jesus has to wrestle with this question. Okay, do I ultimately trust God to provide all my needs. And Jesus actually taught on this a lot, probably never more clearly than in his longest recorded uh, message. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason it's referred to as that is because Jesus uh, gave a sermon on a mountain. So I think it's really creatively named. So it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what we find. Jesus does this teaching on money. He says this, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, you can, you can do that. You can build a lot of worldly wealth, but it's temporary. Instead, he says, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus isn't interested in having your stuff. He wants to make sure your stuff doesn't have you. Jesus is interested in having your heart. But Jesus knows when you trust him with your stuff, your heart follows. That's why when anybody talks about money, we get emotional because our heart follows our stuff. Jesus says, wherever you invest, suddenly you're attached to that. Your heart becomes attached to that. You're emotionally invested. And so if you want your heart to be emotionally invested in God's kingdom, then you invest your financial resources in God's kingdom. And Jesus knew this. And that's why uh, he spent so much time talking about money. Because he knew if he can get a hold of our resources and change how we view money, he can get a hold of our hearts. And here's the truth about this topic. There is not a pastor in America who likes talking about this. It's like, man, I cannot wait to talk to people about money. They just always respond so well. But as I was thinking about this this week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. I actually was starting to get excited about this talk. And here's why. I realized how much spiritual growth 
is tied to this area of our life. In, in fact, you see there's one simple belief and one simple practice that can absolutely revolutionize your financial life and your spiritual life at the same time. I'm thrilled that we get to talk about this from a place of health and not from a place of pressure or guilt or manipulation. But if you can learn this one principle, this will change not only your financial life, but your spiritual life at the same time. It's this. Acknowledge God's ownership. God's the owner. And when we can approach our faith from that standpoint and recognize and view our finances through the lens of like, God, you're the owner and I'm the manager, it changes everything. See, generosity doesn't just mean I, I give something once in a while when I experience an emotional pitch, when, when I you know, see a video and some guys on a bike and they raise some money and I give every once in a while. Generosity doesn't mean I, I give when I feel a little guilty. Generosity, generous people don't respond to emotion and guilt. They've just simply determined I'm going to be generous all the time. I'm just going to live that way. And the reason they can do that is because they recognize they don't own it. It doesn't belong to them. In fact, Jesus told a story to help illustrate this. It's a, it's a fascinating story. We find it in Luke chapter 12. He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. That's a great message for the United States of America for today. Life is not measured by what you own. Then he told them a story. This is just to make his point. He says, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. And then who will get everything you worked for? Answer, somebody else. Now, here's what Jesus says. He, he tells this whole story, and then he, here's the conclusion at the end. He says this. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Here's what Jesus says. He's not saying this person is a fool because they had worldly wealth. That's not what he said. He said he's a fool because he had so much worldly wealth, but he never had a rich relationship with God. He, it was all for himself, and he never invested anything in eternity, which means when he dies, when he gets to the life beyond this life, he has nothing to show for it. He didn't invest in anything there. All he did was hoard all his whole life for himself, and then when he moved on to the next life, somebody else got everything he worked for. He never invested anything in eternity. Jesus didn't call him a fool because he was wealthy. He called him a fool because he never understood why he was wealthy. He didn't call him a fool because he had extra. He called him a fool because he never paused to consider why God had given him extra. That was the difference. It's called the assumption of consumption. The assumption that because it comes to me, it belongs to me. The assumption that because it comes to me, it must be for me. That is the assumption of consumption. And Jesus redefines our definition of ownership. If it can be taken from you, then you never owned it to begin with. It probably owned you. And generous people think like managers, not like owners. And they, they recognize that uh, just because it comes to me doesn't mean that it's for me. Rather, I'm responsible to manage it and to leverage it for the good of God's kingdom. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. This guy represents a, a total and complete loss. He can't take any of it with him when he dies. 
And he doesn't have anything to show for it in the life to come because he hoarded it all. And our net gain will be zero if we spend our whole lives acquiring things that we can't take with us and never investing any of it in the life that is to come. See, we can't take anything with us, but we can send it on ahead by investing in things that have eternal significance. If you want to be a generous person, it's more than just saying, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start giving. It's actually shifting our mindset to recognize I'm not the owner, I'm the manager. That's why at the end of service each week here at Westbridge, we don't say, hey, it's time to take the offering. You'll never hear that language because we don't believe we're taking anything. We genuinely believe this, and we say this every week. This is a, an opportunity that we have to bring back as part of our worship a percentage of what God has entrusted to us financially. That language is very specific because we recognize that's really what's happening. God's the owner, we're the managers. And it's living with that mindset. In fact, here's how Jesus put it. He continues in the Sermon on the Mount and he says this, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So Jesus talks about, okay, invest in things eternal. Don't, don't store your treasure here on earth. Store your treasure in heaven. Oh, and by the way, your eye is like a light, but if the light is dark, it's really dark. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money. You're like, okay, got the treasures in heaven part. Got the can't serve two masters part. What is all this light and darkness and eyes stuff going on in the middle, right? And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. In the context of money and stuff, if the thing that you think is bringing you freedom is actually enslaving you, then you're enslaved and you don't even realize it. You, you have a, a master and you don't even know it. And this is incredibly prophetic because it's an amazing description of the American culture. As long as you view yourself as the owner of your stuff, then your stuff will always own you. The thing that you think is bringing you freedom has actually become your master. And when that happens, Jesus says, you, you can't be fully committed to God and his kingdom. And Jesus understood the number one competition for our hearts is our stuff. And that we could, if we could change our view of stuff, if we could see God as the owner and ourselves as the manager, then we could actually live in freedom. We could actually live in freedom. Now, if we're going to do that, here's something that we've got to discipline ourselves and practice. We've got to regularly practice contentment. It's a discipline. And here's why. This is huge. We would all agree that we live in a very materialistic culture. When we think about it, and for many, the, the goal is just bigger and faster and more. All we hear about in the news anymore is inflation and how it's impacting everything. And, and yet, we live in a, in a pretty materialistic culture. How many times have you suddenly needed something that 10 minutes earlier you didn't even know existed? It's like, I didn't know that existed. Wow, I need that. I have a buddy who uh, a couple years ago got something called the bed jet. Never heard of it. I'm like, he's telling me about it. And it's like a, it sits under your bed and then it has a hose that comes up and goes under your sheets and you can set the temperature. And so in the summer, you can blow cold air under your sheets and it just keeps the temperature regulated all night long. In the winter, you can blow heat into your sheet. I'm like, I, I didn't even know that existed. I need that. I, no, I don't want that. I need that for my health. It's for my health. And it's amazing how we can justify things in our minds, isn't it? 
How, how often uh, how our, our mindset can shift so quickly from desire to need? Because let's be honest, shift happens. And <laughs> I did the same thing with the iPad. I, I'm like, okay, I used to use paper notes when I would speak. And then I decided one day, like, no, 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 I, I need to get an iPad because look how, many, look how much paper I'm printing. And, you know, we got to save the trees. we got to save the environment. And, and so I, I, could, I could use it to give messages on Sundays. And that way I, I'm saving trees and helping people follow Jesus in the process, right? So win-win. So I broke down and bought an iPad for Jesus. <laughs> and you see, you can just justify anything in your mind. I heard this uh, proverb uh, a couple of years ago, and it was uh, a, this old ancient proverb about a, a guy who's a stonecutter. He's out there cutting stone, and as he's doing that, he sees a wealthy merchant coming by, and, he, and he's, uh, he's hanging out with his friends and drinking wine, and he just decides to, to himself, he says, man, I, I wish I was that merchant, and instantly he became the merchant. And now he's hanging out with his friends, and he's sipping wine, and, and as he's doing that, he sees a, a famous and powerful official who's being carried by his servants on a cart. And he looks at him and he goes, man, now that guy has power. I wish I was that official. And instantly he became that official. And now he's riding on the cart and everybody's saying his name and he's well known and he's famous. And he realizes the sun is beating down on him. And he goes, man, the sun is powerful. I wish I was the sun. And instantly he became the sun. And so he's shooting his rays down all over earth, and he's like, now this is power. And suddenly some clouds rolled in and hid all of his beams. And he goes, man, that, those storm clouds, that's power. Look at the lightning and the thunder coming from those clouds. I wish it was those clouds. And he became the clouds. And he's in the sky, and he's raining down lightning and thunder, and all of a sudden a strong wind comes and blows him away. And he goes, whoa, the wind, now that's power. I wish I was the wind. And instantly, he became the wind. And he's moving all over the earth. And he's blowing things away anywhere he likes until he comes up to an object that he cannot move. It's a very strong, powerful boulder. And he goes, now that is power. That is immovable. I wish I was that boulder. And instantly, he became the boulder. And now, he goes, I am immovable. The wind can't move me. The sun can't do anything. I am absolutely immovable until he starts to feel a vibration at the base, and he looks down, and what he sees is a stone cutter. And isn't that the picture? It's exactly where he started. And the truth is, it's not a new concept. Solomon wrote about this a few thousand years ago. He says this, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. It's, it's meaningless to think the more I have, the happier I'll be. But contentment says the exact op- opposite. Contentment says, I don't need that for my happiness. And so if you're here and you say, man, I don't want to be a materialistic person. And I don't know anybody who their objective in life is to be a materialistic person. It's just that in the culture that we live in, that's what oftentimes steers us. In our hearts, we want to be content. But there's only one antidote to materialism, and it's generosity. Generosity is the exact opposite of materialism. And every time that you're generous, you're making a countercultural statement that says this, I reject the myth that my life is about what I can accumulate. I reject the lie that my net worth is the same as my self-worth, that I'm tied up into all the things that I accumulate. Generous people don't respond to guilt or manipulation because they simply live with contentment all the time. 
I don't need that for my happiness. I don't need that to make me happy. And by doing that, they've actually carved out enough margin so that they can be generous. And because what happens is, for some of us, our lack of contentment has led us to materialism, and now we don't have the margin to be as generous as we would like to be. We are generous in our hearts. In our hearts, we want to be generous, but we're limited by our checkbook. And the reason that we're limited in our checkbook is because we've already spent it all. And so it looks like this, man, I would love to be generous. In my heart, I'm a generous person, and I would love to be more generous, but I've already given away all of my money to me. I haven't lived with contentment. I haven't cultivated contentment. And so I've purchased things that make me, I thought would make me happy in the moment. And now I don't have the margin to be as generous with my finances as I feel in my heart. Contentment helps with that. If you want to have the margin to be generous, then you have to regularly practice contentment. And I'm okay with what I have. I don't need more to be happy. And you might think that sounds crazy, but what we do in the United States of America is pretty crazy. We buy things with money that we don't have, and we pay interest on things that depreciate in value the minute we take possession of them. That's crazy. So if you want to be generous, and I genuinely believe we want to be generous, that our hearts want to be generous, you've got to change your mindset from owner to manager. You've got to recognize it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God, and I'm going to manage it well. And in doing that, you have to regularly practice contentment. And that will help create margin so that you can be generous. And then once you've created that margin, here's the next step. Develop a plan. Develop a plan. You're like, well, I'm not a planner. You know, my my spouse is a planner. I'm not the planner. Well, let me just say this to all of you non-planners. You have a plan. You just don't know it. See, you have financial habits, habits, which means you have a plan. You just haven't written it down. Everybody has a plan. And if you don't know what your plan is, it's probably a bad plan. I'm just going to say. And here's why I know that. You have never drifted in a good direction financially. You've never, you've never looked at an account and like, I didn't know I had that in there. Well, that's cool. It doesn't work like that. You plan towards what is good. You drift towards what is bad. And so if you have financial habits, you're working a plan. You just haven't written it down. And here's what most people's plan looks like. Spend, save, give. Spend, save, give. Spend on myself first, pay my bills, buy food, you know, right? make the car payment, make the house payment, whatever I got to do. Spend on me. Then if I have any leftover after that, then I'll save a little bit and put a little in savings. And then if I have any leftover after that, then I guess I will give. I can be generous with whatever is left over. And when that's your plan, then you will give occasionally, but it'll be kind of sporadic and it'll be you know, sparingly and spontaneously every once in a while. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to change that because it will make your life happier to live more generous. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to change that because it will make your life happier to live more generously and it will grow your faith in Jesus. You'll begin to understand that he's the provider for me and you'll trust that. And if you're going to do that, you need a plan. And so I would suggest the plan is to flip the script from spend, save, give to give, save, spend. Give, save, spend. Give, save, spend. That looks like this. Every time that I get paid, the first thing I do is I give. And then I put some in savings, and then I get to live on the rest. And out of that, I will, out of that leftover, once I've, now I, can, now I can spend whatever I need to out of this portion. Now, I know that that can seem overwhelming. 
So I want you to consider this question. This is what I want you to leave, to leave you with today as we sort of close this out here over the next couple minutes. What is your next right step in generosity? That's it. What is your next right step? My goal is not that you go from, man, I've never given to a church before to, okay, now I'm going to write a big check. That's not at all my goal. My goal is just simply this. What would it look like for you to grow a little bit in this area? And our goal is be that you would understand this is a heart issue. It's not a money issue. It's about your heart. And that you would take one step towards all that God has for you through generosity. Just, that's it. Just one simple step. So here's, this, here's what this looks like. Would you consider being a first-time giver? Would you just consider giving for the first time? You're like, I've never given to a church before. Okay, I just want to ask you to consider this as your next step, a first-time giver. That's it. And you can decide the amount that's totally between you and God. But this just goes, okay, I've never given to a church before. I'm going to try this. And, it, and I know what you might be thinking. Well, sure, preacher, you're, that sounds pretty self-serving for you to say give. So if, if that's the, the caveat, give it to a different church. Lots of great churches around here. Give it to one of them. This isn't about us trying to get your money for us, okay? I want you to try saying, God, I want to try seeing you as the owner and me as the manager, so I'm going to give for the first time. Just try that. Start there. Now, if you'd say, yeah, I've given to a church before, would you try being a consistent giver? And that just means this. Every time that I receive, I'm going to give consistently. Every time that I get paid, I'm going to give some of that back to God through my local church. That's just a consistent giver. So God, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this give, save, spend concept. So every time that I get paid, I'm going to give some back. That's a consistent giver. Now, some of you do that and you go, I do. Every time that I get paid, I, I, I throw five or $10 and, and that's great. And I do that consistently every time I get paid. I'm going to ask you to take one next step and be an intentional giver. And an intentional giver says this, I, I don't just kind of like uh, figure out the amount once I get paid, but I set an amount and every time I get paid, I, I consistently give a specific amount. Whether that's I give $50 or I give $100 or I give a percentage, I give 3% or 4%. Whatever that is, I'm intentional about it. it, it it's not just that I give a little bit each time, but I'm really intentional. I want to make a difference. Now, if that's where you're at, I'm going to ask you to take this next step and become a surrendered giver. A surrendered giver really says this. I'm going to return first out of what I get paid back to God, and I'm going to give 10% of what God has given me. Now, why, why do that? Well, in the Old Testament, Jewish people are commanded to give 10% of what God has entrusted to them. And when Jesus comes along, he doesn't abolish that. He doesn't do away with that. He actually encourages people like, hey, if you're going to be generous, because again, we're motivated not by greed and not by guilt, but by grace. And because we've experienced so much of God's grace, Jesus just affirms 10% is a great starting point. And I can tell you, 10% has been a starting point for myself and for my wife for the last 23 years that we've been married. It's something that I learned, both of us learned as kids. My first job is when I was eight years old, just because I wanted some spending money. And my parents were like, well, you got to work for it. And I, uh, the little bags of screws that you can buy at the hardware store, I counted those out, 27 screws in each bag or something like that. And I would count them out and fill the bag and staple the bag and deliver them to the hardware store. And I think I made like $9. Child labor was fine in the 80s. Uh, so uh, I made like $9 a week or something like that, you know. But they were like, hey, you got $9. 90 cents, you're going to give back to God through your local church. And then you have, you know, $8.10. And I was like, oh, I'm rich. 
But I learned that as a kid, and we've done that for the last 23 years that we've been married. We've taught our kids that. And I'm just telling you, there's no greater joy as a parent than seeing them every time they get paid. My kids who work go, okay, I'm going to take 10% and I'm going to give that back to God through my local church and throw 20% in the savings and I get to live on the 70. It's a great way to live. And if I can get them to catch that early on. Now, I say that, that, that doesn't mean God's given us everything we ever wanted, okay? Or I'd be driving a Porsche right now, all right? It doesn't work that way. But we have known the joy of generosity. And we're, we've been able to be freed from our dependence on stuff. And I say that not to brag. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I just want you to know that I'm smoking what I'm selling here. All right? So, you know, I believe in the product, all right? I'm never going to ask us as a church to do something that I'm not going to lead the way on personally. And as a church, we do the same thing. As a church, we take 10% of everything that comes in and we give it away so that we can say, as a church, we do this. And our family individually does this. Because I want you to know we're never going to ask you to do something that we're not going to lead the way on. And so this is what it means to be a surrendered giver. Every time I get paid, God, I'm going to give 10% of it back to you. And then some of you say, I do that. I'm going to ask you to consider being a legacy giver. What is a legacy giver? Well, we have something called the Legacy Project. And that means if once I give 10% on a consistent basis, there's opportunities throughout the year where I can give even above and beyond that to special projects. And go, look, I, I want to leave a legacy. Like, I want when my life is done for, for the ripple effect of my life to continue into the next generation so that I've invested in things that are actually making a difference when I'm no longer here. That's someone who says, I want to leave a legacy. I, I want to do more and leave a legacy of God's love and God's grace in this world long after I'm around. I want to outlive my life because of my generosity. I'm blessed so that I can be a blessing. Now, here's... Something kind of cool about this. If you're a first-time giver, you get to decide if you give. That's still, in your, that's still up to you. You're like, well, if I give, that's up to you. That's between you and God. If you're going to give consistently, you get to decide when you give. If you're going to be intentional about giving, you get to decide how much. When you're a first-time and consistent intentional giver, you're still saying, I get to decide if, I get to decide when, and I get to decide how much. When you become a surrendered giver, those questions are settled. God, it's not if I'm going to give, I'm going to. Every time I get paid, I'm, I recognize you're the owner, I'm the manager, you've entrusted it to me, so I'm going to return a portion back to you. And when, that's, that's already settled. Every time that you give to me, I'm going to give back to you. And how much? Already settled. 10% of whatever you entrust to me, I'm going to return back to you. I'm surrendered to your way of doing it. That's the difference. And up until this point, you're still in charge. But a surrendered giver says, God, you're in charge. I'm surrendered to you and your way of doing things. And here's what I know about most of us. If we were to experience trouble financially, whether that means massive debt or a layoff or we're trying to sell our house or we're facing bankruptcy or someone cheats us out of money or whatever it is, almost all of us somewhere along the way would pray and ask God for help. We just would. And whenever we ask God for a job or we ask God to protect us from this layoff or the, uh, the turn of the economy or help us financially in any way, what we're doing is we're inviting God to get involved in our money. We're saying, God, I'm inviting you to get involved in my money because I need your help. And I need you to be in control of my money. So here's what I want us to consider. If you think you would pray and invite God into your finances, if there was ever a problem, why not invite God into our finances and invite him to be in control before there's a problem? Why not just say, God, I just invite you. I want to I handle my finances your way. I'm inviting you in. That's what generosity does. Because here's the bottom line. God 
doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. God's not looking to get something from you as if God needs anything from you. He wants something for you. God doesn't need your stuff. He wants your heart. God doesn't want you not to own stuff. He wants to make sure your stuff doesn't own you because he wants something for you. He wants you to experience faith. He wants you to experience freedom. He wants you to experience the peace and the joy that comes from living an open-handed life and recognizing he owns it all. He's provided it to me. Happier is the one who gives than the one who receives. And the peace that comes from knowing you didn't squander the amazing blessings that he gave you only in the pursuit of pleasing yourself. He wants you to experience the kind of peace that comes from knowing now God's blessed you and you've been a blessing to the world. Here's what Jesus would say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount on this section. He would say this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Not everything you ask for, not everything you ever wanted, not everything you desire, but everything you need. That just means this, God, I'm going to put your kingdom first. I'm going to invest in things that have eternal significance, and I'm just going to trust that you're going to provide. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to consider. What is your next right step? From wherever you're at, wherever you're at currently, would you consider taking one next right step? And here's what I love about this. This is simply what Jesus teaches on generosity. And we love you, and we're glad that you're here. And you can decide to take this and go, what a crock. And come back next week. We'll still love you and still be glad you're here. Because whatever you decide to do with this is between you and God. Isn't that beautiful? Our role is simply to teach, here's what Jesus teaches on this topic, and then let you decide between you and God how you want to respond. Would you consider being a first-time giver if that's your next step? Would you consider being a consistent giver if that's your next step? For some of you, intentional giver. Some of you, you're saying, I'm ready to be a surrendered giver. Some of you say, I've, I've done that. Now I want to be a legacy giver. Wherever you find yourself, just say, God, help me take one next right step. And here's what I love about this. The reason we can do this is because God is a God of generosity. He's been so generous to us. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son. You've been invited to be a part of God's family because we have a God who is generous toward us. And if you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, it is because of what God has done. It's not because of anything you can do to earn your way in. And if you'd like to say yes to be a part of God's family, whether you're online or in person, just agree with this simple prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for those times I know I've walked away from you or rejected you, but you've never walked away from me. And I want to say yes to your invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to do my best to put my trust in you to follow your way of living life as best as I know how. And God, I pray for every one of us who are following you. May we recognize you're the owner of it all. And you entrust it to us. And may we see our stuff not as owners, but as managers. And may we practice contentment the kind of contentment that gives us the margin to live as generously with our checkbooks as we feel in our hearts. Because of your generosity toward us, may we be a group of people who live generously to the world around us, recognizing it is more blessed to give than to receive. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.